Welcome to A Good Night for a Murder, a Victorian true crime podcast. My name is Kim, and as you may know, telling scary stories is a Victorian Christmas tradition. And tonight, I have what I consider more of a Victorian horror story for you. It comes to us from the cold, snowy forests of North America. This is the story of Swift Runner and the Wendigo. But first, a Victorian society tip. During the Christmas holiday season, a favorite pastime of Victorians was telling ghost stories. But where did that tradition come from? Well, the winter months in Victorian England were long, dark, and cold. They were made up of long evenings gathered around the fire without any other form of entertainment. All families and friends had was one another to keep themselves company, shut inside dark homes, save for the firelight, surrounded by the even darker night outside. Also, the holiday of Christmas wasn't the merry, jolly holiday it is today. Many Christmas traditions are inspired by the pagan festival of Yule, which begins on the winter solstice, December 21st, and lasts for 12 nights. This was regarded as a time when the veil between the worlds of the living and dead was thin. And Yule in particular actually celebrates the returning of the sunlight as days start to get longer and longer again from that day forward. So it's a time that's very symbolic of returning, things coming back. And remember, the veil is thin. What exactly do you think is likely to come back? So these traditions, coupled with the fact that people had very little else to do, sitting around in dark rooms where winter weather very well might isolate them from the rest of the outside world for some time, really brewed up the perfect environment for ghost stories. Initially, stories were passed along by word of mouth, but by about the 1830s to 1840s, the Industrial Revolution really took off in Britain, and the distribution of ghost stories was helped along by advancements in the printing industry. It became cheaper to print and publish all sorts of things, thereby making the publications more affordable to buy and more accessible to working and middle classes. Also, the literacy rates were increasing during this time. So, if you're looking to celebrate the Christmas season like a Victorian, wait until night, turn off all of your lights, light some candles, and gather some friends for a good old-fashioned ghost storytelling. Happy holidays, everyone. A Good Night for a Murder is a true crime podcast that does cover stories including death, violence, sexual assault, and other adult themes. Tonight's story does include mention of cannibalism. Please take care while listening. In 1878, the region of land that is now known as Alberta, Canada, was only a few years away from officially being accepted as part of Canada. At the time, the Hudson Bay Company, who were fur traders, were well-established in the area and pretty much considered themselves the law of the land where they operated. Now, eventually, the Hudson Bay Company sold the land they were operating on to the Dominion of Canada, contributing to the establishment of the Northwestern Territories. And to maintain order in the newly established territories, Canada created the Northwest Mounted Police. Now, this little history lesson is all to introduce you to an indigenous man of the Cree people named Ka Ki Sikuchen, which in English has been translated to Swift Runner. You see, the Northwestern Territories were a big region, and the newly implemented police force wasn't entirely familiar with the area. So they hired indigenous people as guides. And that's what Swift Runner did. He traded with the Hudson Bay Company, and he worked for the Northwest Mounted Police as a guide. 
He also had a wife and six children and was well-respected amongst his people. He started working with the Hudson Bay Company about 1875, where he became acquainted with the whiskey trade. He became so acquainted with the whiskey that he developed alcoholism, and it became a real problem for him. Unfortunately, he was reported to be kind of an angry drunk. Just before the winter of 1878, the Hudson Bay Company told him that his drinking made him too unreliable, and they couldn't have him working with them anymore. This did little to help his alcoholism, and soon he was causing so many problems in his tribe as well, they had to ask him to leave. So Swift Runner, his wife, six children, his mother-in-law, and his brother all struck out on their own into the forest to fend for themselves. Months go by, and no one, neither the Hudson Bay Company nor the Cree people, hear anything of Swift Runner and his family. And it had been kind of a particularly bitter winter, unfortunately. Finally, the spring thaw begins, and one day a Cree man staggers out of the woods onto the doorstep of a Catholic missionary. The priests immediately take him in, give him aid, and they learn that he'd been trying to survive in the woods all winter, separated from his tribe, and his whole family had died. He's the only one who made it. So the priests find this a little surprising. I mean, the Cree people have been living on this land for centuries. They know how to get through the winters. Plus, despite the bitter winter, they knew hunting and trapping had remained plentiful. But of course, they take him in and tell him he can stay there until he feels recovered. Of course, the man they take in is the subject of our story, Swift Runner. But almost right away, an ease settles in amongst some of the priests because despite the horrific conditions of starvation and exposure Swift Runner describes, he appears to be in pretty good health. He certainly doesn't seem sick and emaciated as one would expect after having a winter like Swift Runner is describing. Also, he frequently wakes in the night screaming from terrible, terrible nightmares. Something very, very bad must have happened to Swift Runner out there in the woods. And little by little, the priests start to wonder, did Swift Runner eat his family? The priests have to report their suspicions to the authorities, the Northwest Mounted Police, who immediately put Swift Runner under arrest and order him to take them to his winter campsite. So it's a little uncertain if he complied right away or not. Some reports say he took them there without hesitation. Others said they offered him whiskey to get him drunk first, which is pretty deplorable. But either way, he does lead investigators there shortly thereafter. And from what they find, it's pretty unmistakable what went down. Scattered throughout the camp were human bones. Some of them were broken in pieces with the marrow sucked out of the middle. They also discovered a pot of human fat. Swift Runner identified one skull as his wife's and another as his mother-in-law's and also showed them the grave of his brother. When they ask Swift Runner what happened here, he responds that he turned Wendigo. To the Cree people, the Wendigo is a malevolent forest spirit that possesses humans, filling them with a hunger that can only be satiated by consuming human flesh. Or so they think. The truth is, once one is possessed by a Wendigo, they'll never feel full again. They'll always feel ravenous for human flesh forever. The Wendigo is also described as a being that roams the forest, specifically the cold northern regions. It has the ability to imitate the voice of anything or anyone and will often use this to lure its victims deeper into the woods. So it could imitate your little sister or your child or your wife or your husband or even your pet, for example crying for help in the woods, causing you to run out blindly into the woods to help them. And by the time you realize that that can't be them and that you've made a mistake, it's too late for you. 
Modern depictions of the Wendigo often like to show it as this like lean, muscular, humanoid creature with a deer skull and antlers as a head. And while that makes for good modern horror movies, the original lore describes the Wendigo differently. Indigenous lore describes the Wendigo as at least twice as tall as any man, cracked, dry, gray skin, horribly emaciated, skin stretched painfully across bones. It has dark sunken eyes and yellow jagged teeth that are constantly biting and gnawing at its own lips so that it has essentially eaten off part of its own face. It's so desperate and hungry. And despite its sickly appearance, it is fast and stealthy, and it will be upon you before you even know what's happening. But once it eats someone, it just grows in size. So what would have been a full meal only fills it as much as a teeny tiny crumb would. So it keeps hunting. Now, what Swift Runner describes is becoming possessed by the spirit of the Wendigo. He says it started with terrible dreams. Then the thoughts began to consume him during his waking hours as well until his mind was completely taken over with the need to kill and eat his family. Which is what he said happened. But he wasn't himself. He was Wendigo. Now, this concept is not foreign to the Cree people and other Algonquin tribes. Modern anthropologists and psychologists have termed this Wendigo psychosis, and they describe it as a syndrome where people become obsessed with, but at the same time develop an intense fear of, consuming human flesh. They lose their appetite for all of their food and can suffer nausea or vomiting, and sometimes they suffer delusions of becoming a Wendigo monster. This psychosis is typically found in individuals living in the Great Lakes region of the U.S. and Canada, where people may find themselves isolated with low food supplies during long winters. In fact, if indigenous people found someone in their tribe exhibiting symptoms of Wendigo psychosis, they would euthanize them. It was for the greater good of the tribe. Now, they didn't see it as a disease in the mind like modern doctors describe it, of course. To them, the Wendigo is a spirit or creature or both that had very real-world influence on human behavior. But the Northwest Mountain Police, who were not indigenous, they were all white colonizers, heard Swift Runner's story and regarded the Wendigo defense as utter nonsense and instead declared him a murderer. So on May 27, 1879, they gathered up all the remains of Swift Runner's family and brought them and him back to Fort Saskatchewan, where he was charged with murder and cannibalism. His trial began on August 8, 1879, and the jury included three men described as, quote, English-speaking Cree half-breeds, four men well up in the Cree language, probably white, I'm sure, and a Cree man who also translated the proceedings. There were a number of witnesses who testified to the health of Swift Runner's family when they left and of Swift Runner's health when he returned. Also, they were not buying the starvation story as well, as there was actually an outpost situated not too far away where they could have access to food and other supplies. As you might imagine, it's not looking favorable for Swift Runner. Swift Runner, though, did not deny any of it. He fully confessed to consuming his family in the way they described, except he was not under his own power when he did so. He was possessed by the Wendigo spirit. And many people believed him. But there were also rumors that many years ago, Swift Runner had been forced to eat the remains of one of his hunting partners after they got trapped somewhere. And ever since then, he'd just been waiting for another opportunity to consume human flesh. Either way, I'm sure you can unfortunately see the direction this is going. Swift Runner was declared guilty and sentenced to hang. The hanging was scheduled for December 20th, 1879 at 730 in the morning. 
There had been only one other execution carried out at the fort prior by the Hudson Bay Company, but this would be the first ever official execution in Alberta, Canada. The morning of December 20th was bitterly cold, and when they offered Swift Runner the chance to speak to a priest before his execution, he responded, The white man has ruined me. I don't think their God would amount to much. They led Swift Runner out to the gallows, only to discover that the trap door on the platform had been disassembled and burned as kingling at some point. Also, whoever they hired to perform the execution had just forgotten the straps he was supposed to bring to bind the prisoner's arms. All in all, it took them nearly two hours to find new straps and build a new trapdoor, during which Swift Runner sat by a fire and snidely remarked that he could have finished the job himself with his own tomahawk quicker. Once they were ready to go, Swift Runner was allowed to address the crowd that had gathered to watch the execution. It's said that he again openly acknowledged his guilt with his own version of events, he thanked his jailers for their kindness, and he chastised the executioners for making him wait in the cold. After which, he stepped into the trapdoor and remarked, I am no longer a man, right before the execution was carried out. The sources I used said he was buried in the snow outside of the fort, but records today show his final resting place is the Fort Saskatchewan Jail Cemetery. I'm assuming he was later moved there because, you know, snow melts. But anyway, there are 13 graves in the Fort Saskatchewan Jail Cemetery, though there are no names on the markers. Wendigo sightings are still reported today along the U.S. and Canadian border. Now, what do you guys think of this story? He did admit that he did it. I don't buy the rumors, though, that he was just looking to murder and eat humans again. I fully accept his own explanation as his truth, no matter if I believe in the indigenous lore of the Wendigo or not. The Wendigo psychosis is a documented affliction of people from that region, and seeing a swift runner and his family had been cast out to survive the winter on their own, plus he was likely experiencing withdrawal as an alcoholic, it's not hard to make the hop, skip, and the jump to believing that Swift Runner truly believed he was possessed by the spirit, which, again, to him, was very, very real. There are other stories of how Indigenous people dealt with those that they determined had turned Wendigo. Actually, it's what the bonus content this week is about. And in those cases, they handled it within their own tribes, usually by euthanizing those people. And while that might sound unpalatable and brutal to us, it was how they lived and how they solved this problem, which as I keep saying, was very real to them. It honestly sounds to me like this is just another example of colonizers imposing their own will on a set of people who did not ask for it. Albeit a very, very heartbreaking, sad facet of their culture, it was their culture, and I can't imagine it was easy or desirable in any way. If white people weren't so taken with subjecting other people to our laws, I think things might have ended differently for Swift Runner. If you head over to Instagram or TikTok at a goodnight for a murder, you can see photos of Swift Runner, one version of a Wendigo, and more. You can also see the photos and source links on the episode blog on my website at a goodnightforamurder.com. While you're on the website, you can sign up for the Goodnight for a Murder newsletter. Each month, I send an episode roundup, reveal of next month's episodes, and other goodies like extra Victorian society tips, book recommendations, and more. The bonus content for Housekeeper and Butler tier patrons for this episode, as I mentioned, is a second Wendigo story from the early 1900s. To subscribe to Patreon and learn more about the podcast, you can visit agoodnightforamurder.com. Also follow me on Instagram or TikTok at agoodnightforamurder. Please rate and review and share with friends. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you again soon. Mm-hmm.